welcome back to the Like a Bigfoot podcast. Or if you're a first-time listener, thank you for joining us. I'm so excited for this week. Uh, I love adventure. I love hearing about travel. In fact, I have the travel bug that is being satiated by the fact that I just moved to Colorado so I can literally explore thousands of places within like an hour of my house, which is pretty cool. Today's guest explains a story about traveling around the world to climb giant mountains. So here's my question for you guys this week. Are you a why person or a why not person? There's the difference between these two philosophies. Why people are very, uh, I guess you could say analytical, uh, maybe overly critical. Um, they're always questioning the reason why someone's doing something. For instance, uh, let's say a friend comes up to you and says, I signed up for a marathon. And they'll say, why'd you sign up for a marathon? You haven't even ran three miles before. Why would you do that? Why wouldn't you just sign up for a 5K? Why would you even think you can run a marathon? This makes no sense. And being a why person or being surrounded by why people can stop you in your tracks. All of a sudden you are questioning so much that, you know, you just, you stay complacent. Being a why person or listening to the concerns of the why people might cause you to never go after your dreams or never try to achieve any lofty goal you've set out to do or even really simply just chase a whimsy you know if you have an interest in something start trying pursuing it start pursuing that interest on the other hand the world of possibilities is opened up by being a why not person if someone comes up to you with a bizarre wacky idea why not say why not why not pursue those ideas me personally i have a whole bunch of why not friends and i think i'm a better person because i'm surrounded by this philosophy um for example my friend travis who's been on this podcast episode number 10 he's a why not person no matter what crazy adventure i come up with he will always immediately text back or call back and say, I'm in 100%. That's why he accidentally signed up for a 50-mile race with me in March in a few months, <laughs> which he's going to be in a lot of pain. But imagine the possibilities of where your life can take you if you start looking at things with the why not philosophy. Instead of finding all of those reasons to not do something or not start something, what if you, you might see those reasons still, but what if you just completely ignore them and go after that something anyways? In my opinion, this perspective is key to having a successful life because having the opposite perspective, the why, why would I start this? Why would I follow this whimsy? 
that is going to paralyze you into inactivity. And if there's one thing that I'm afraid of in the whole wide world besides snakes, because I'm like Indiana Jones in my mind, but if (laughs) if there's one thing I'm afraid of, it's inactivity, complacency, sitting still and not pursuing anything because maybe you are just like oh well this is what life is now i'm just uh you know this is what i do i don't change i'm unchanging i'm unwilling to change i'm unwilling to go after an adventure maybe go on a journey i'm just gonna sit around and do the same thing day in day out until uh you know one day i i'm sitting on my deathbed that scares the crap out of me (laughs) because there's this beautiful gift we've all been given and that's the gift of further growth we can always grow in our mindsets in our health uh in our experiences and you're given that gift and some people choose to waste it which blows my mind All that being said, (laughs) today's guest, uh, I'm so happy and honored to uh, bring this conversation to you. He's my uncle, Joel. And if I'm going to be honest, I would just called his, (laughs) my cousin Susan. And I'm like, hey, what's a, how do you say uncle Joel's last name? Because like, I've never said uncle Joel's last name. So hopefully I pronounce it right. But as I re-listened to this interview, there was one part that stood out to me, and he's always been funny. He's always been a great storyteller, uh, and I think he meant this line kind of, kind of funny, but it stuck out. And uh, basically, you'll hear it in the interview, but Uncle Joel was on the precipice of an adventure. He'd been rock climbing for quite a while, and uh, kind of just in his early 20s, trying to figure out what to do next. And he was sitting by this lady, this lady named Arlene Bloom, who turns out ended up becoming one of the leading paradigm shifting female mountaineers. And she brought up this idea of this around the world trip where they would climb a bunch of mountains um, in various countries over a whole year. And I'm sure there was like, thousands of reasons for uncle joel to say no or to think this probably isn't going to work out for reasons a through z but (laughs) he's he says in the interview that he probably said something super uh intelligent like sure why not and he joined her expedition And he had this round-the-world adventure that really stemmed him on the path of being a lifelong adventurer, outdoor lover, journeyman. (laughs) And that, more than anything else in this episode, is what I took away. Follow your why-nots. All right, so we're proud to introduce Joel Bound, Uncle Joel, to the Like a Bigfoot podcast, number 16, our first foray 
<laughs> into rock climbing and mountaineering and round the world travel awesomeness. All right, Uncle Joel. So I was going to have you on the podcast today because I know that you are a badass adventurer, but I don't know many of the specifics. So this is kind of a, a selfish podcast for me to really understand all the cool stuff you've done in your life. <laughs> all right. So I know you. I know you've been like an outdoorsman. I know you've been a climber. I know you just love going on adventures. But I, besides the ones that have happened recently, where I know you've taken my my mom to like, you know, cross country skiing in the winter to cabin to cabin and you know all those crazy things. Uh, besides those, uh -huh. I don't know about any of the previous adventures. So if okay. you could fill me in, that'd be awesome. <laughs> Well, let, let me sort of start uh, whatever. I'm not quite sure it's the, it's the beginning, but it's close enough to the beginning. I uh, grew up in, in, in Salt Lake City right on the edge of uh, the, uh, the county, sort of where the, the, the neighborhoods ended and there was just a hillside up above. And my friends and I started uh, hiking up uh, these hills when we were little, you know, probably, I don't know, Six or eight or ten, and we just sort of uh, really grooved on uh, getting away from uh, our folks, getting away from other people, and just sort of seeing these, be these beautiful scenes, you know, sort of overlooking the, the, Salt, the Salt Lake Valley. And uh, as, as we got older, we started going a little further afield, and by the time we were in our early teens, we would have uh, our, our dads usually would drive us up into one of the, uh, the canyons where the big ski resorts are in. in uh, the Salt Lake area, and we would go on uh, overnight uh, camping trips and then hike up to, I was always really into views, so we'd hike up on top of the hills, and we discovered uh, relatively quickly there's some really steep, rocky things around uh, the Salt Lake City area, so we would get into uh, certainly what you might think of as easy, easy scrambling, nothing with nothing technical, nothing with a rope or anything, and probably... Uh, did a little bit of rope things in in, uh, in high school days, but it really wasn't until college that uh, I got much more serious about uh, climbing and mountaineering. What ended up really piquing my interest is the uh, summer of 1965. I worked for the U.S. Forest Service in Grand Teton. I was sort of on, on the not on the mountain side of the Grand Tetons. I was on Jackson Hole. I was on the Forest Service side, and on weekends we would uh, just go over into the, the Grand Teton National Park and do some relatively easy climbs, you know, things, things that weren't really technical. We didn't really need a rope, but we got up on top of some of the uh, bigger mountains, Tiwanak being a good example of that, and I just was... Uh, fell in love with the whole business. I, I, I loved the views. I loved the uh, adventure of it all. I loved the camaraderie, and it was just a really fun way to uh, spend time. So that following winter, the University of Utah, where I was uh, a student, had an uh, organization called the Ute Alpine Club, which was a bunch of people that were really into uh, outdoor things. By springtime, I took a rock climbing class from a fellow named Bill Isherwood, 
and really learned how to uh, safely use ropes. And uh, in those days, we used pitons rather than climbing nuts and things like that. But basically, sort of the, the fundamentals of, of actual rock climbing. And at that point, the, the die was cast. So the following summer and uh, five or six summers thereafter, my friends and I would uh, work during the, uh, the week. And then uh, on the weekend, it was fairly brutal. We would leave work at 5, drive about halfway to uh, Grand Teton National Park, just throw our sleep bags out on the ground, sleep for a handful of hours. Then the next morning, we would continue on the drive up there. We would climb a peak. Sometimes uh, they were mountains that we could climb in one day or a couple, probably a handful of times when we would get halfway up and then just bivouac on a ledge someplace and finish the climb the next day, uh, come back down, grab some food in Jackson, drive back home, get home at uh, you know midnight or 2 in the morning, then get up Monday morning and go to work again, which uh, I think about that now, and I think, whoa, that was uh, pro- probably a good hazardous way to uh, spend your weekends. We're lucky we never had any... Uh, Adventures or rollovers. I think the, the biggest adventure we ever had is uh, one time where one guy was driving and the rest of us were asleep. And suddenly he started chuckling and it woke us up. We thought, what the heck? And it turned out he'd hit a skunk and it didn't take us very long to realize <laughs> what had actually happened. We had a couple of, you know, uh, uh, automobile adventures because, of course, in those days uh, when you're young, you don't buy the best of cars, so there was always some kind of an automobile adventure. So yeah. Anyway, we, <clears throat> did, we, ended, uh, up, we ended up becoming. Hmm? Did, did you ever show up to work so beat up that the bosses maybe made a comment, or smelling like skunk? Well, I guess? <laughs> uh, yeah, sometimes. I mean, we, 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 we were in school and in uh, in the winter, and then uh, in spring, fall, and winter, and then in work in the summer. And sometimes they would say. Wow, you really tied one on this weekend. <laughs> well, yeah, but it wasn't at the bar, you know. We uh, we literally tied out. we tied ropes on. <laughs> <laughs> we really tied on. So we we got to the point when oftentimes it was it, it took a week of work to recover from the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> but we actually became really pretty darn good climbers. We we did some uh, some some really uh, good things, and uh, then periodically we would get an opportunity to go a little further afield a couple of times i think in like 68 69 several of us went down to uh, yosemite valley okay and spent a week climbing down there we uh we're definitely the uh the, the b team you know the, the the real names in the world of climbing the people like yvonne chenard and royal robbins by then we're sort of doing some of these just really really incredible things and we weren't that good, so we, we would do things that were sort of on the periphery. I, I do remember one time at Camp 4, which was sort of the climbers hang out there, we were, there's a really hard uh, boulder climb there, and we walked over there, and there was this uh, guy just sort of decked out in just the snazziest clothes you can imagine, climbing up this really uh, <laughs> amazing looking thing with a good reef. That's really something else. And he got to the top, and this cute young thing walked up uh, below him and held her hands in front of her and said, oh, 
Royal, you're so wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Which made us suspect that we'd actually met the great Royal Robinson. Yeah. Did you? Or was, I mean, was that him? Yeah, it really was Royal Robinson. No, yeah, I mean, he, okay. he, he, he was really, he was really a, uh, a dude even then, you know. He had yeah. uh, really nice clothes and his really, uh, you know, well-tailored uh, hat and outfit. And every, every hair was in place. And he what, was just really a kick. What, what was that movie? Um, it's a documentary on Netflix. Oh, man. Uh, it's like I can picture it. It's all about climbing oh, in Yosemite. Yeah, I know what you mean. It was called. It'll take me a minute to Because we, we saw that we went over to the uh, Momentum Climbing Gym here in uh, in Salt Lake City a couple of years ago when that thing was yeah. making the circuit at all the climbing gyms. I found it. it. Valley Uprising. That's, that's it, yeah. And so if yeah. you watch that, he's kind of one of the first... Royal Robbins was one of the... I'm trying to remember it. He was one of the first guys they talked about, like the first generation of climbers in the Yeah, the, 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 some of the really <clears throat> big climbs back in those days were being done by uh, a team of Royal Robbins, uh, Yvonne Chouinard, Chuck Pratt, and uh, Tom, what was Tom's last name? And you, be a minute. You, anyway, you we, 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 the, we didn't we ever climbed with any of those folks, but we uh, we met them. There was a uh, a really badass group of people. <laughs> a little bit uh, before them, a little bit older. Warren Harding being the most that's uh, who I'm thinking entertaining of the okay. lot. And Warren was just really something. He, he's the guy that first managed to climb. The nose of El Capitan. He was it a was, crazy uh, dude, right? With the he was a crazy dude. He, <laughs> he, he was he was just a a, a wild man, and uh, but he was uh, a phenomenal climber. I mean, the things that he actually did. He was he was very very bold. I mean, he was going off on things that most people would look at and say, "Oh, wow!" You know, <laughs> yeah. there is no way anybody's ever going to climb that. And he would figure out how to uh, to do it and. Uh, Make it happen. He had this. Uh, if you if you read any of the articles about him, he had this. He called it bat technology. He had bat tents and uh, bat ledges and uh, bat protection and so on. And bat was actually an acronym for basically absurd technology. <laughs> <laughs> so what? I mean, rock climbing at that time was a very a very small percentage of people doing this. Correct. It, it was. I mean, it was. It was sort of uh, for us uh, misfits. I was always a uh, one of the high school dweebs back before we knew <laughs> who, what dweebs were. But we we were the people that just sort of didn't fit in. If it was played with a ball, we were bad at it and didn't like it. <laughs> but uh, we we sort of enjoyed doing uh, sports and activities that uh, didn't involve balls. And so, especially in college days. You know, we all, all us misfits sort of found each other, and we we did a n- number of these trips. So uh, I would argue we, if uh, you're on the edge of a cliff, that involves more balls. But yeah, maybe so. <laughs> Different kind. <laughs> <laughs> and and then probably probably one of my um, biggest adventures was uh, in. Uh, the spring of 1969, I went down to uh, Berkeley to meet up with a friend, and we were going to go spend the summer climbing in the Alps. And uh, that trip fell apart for reasons that don't really matter now. But we were sitting on top of, uh, with the, the Sierra Club, on a on a rock in the uh, the Berkeley Hills. 
and I was uh, belaying my friend up and started chatting with this gal uh, next to me, and she started talking about uh, how she wanted to spend a year. She was bored with her PhD and started talking about this around-the-world adventure where if you left the U.S. at the right time of year and went the right direction, uh, you could hit 10 different um, climbing areas in their prime season one after another. Wow. That was the era. There was a big surfing movie in those days called The, uh, the, the Endless Summer which actually, if you ever watch that, it's the endless movie. It just sort of goes on and on and on. But she called, decided to call this adventure the, uh, the endless winter because we, the idea was to spin it up in the high mountains. And then she, uh, after we chat for a while, she said to me, well, what do you think? Are you interested in doing something like that? And I said something real uh, profound, like, sure, why not? Well, three years later, Arlene Bloom, who was the woman, and became one of the uh, early pioneers of sort of you know major women's mountaineering. So she and I and uh, two other fellows took off, and we did a uh, year climbing mountains around the world. We uh, left Berkeley, flew to New York, spent uh, a week knocking on the doors of embassies. Back in those days, you, you needed to get uh, visas and sometimes special permits, and they were oftentimes about the only way you could really do it was to show up in person at a uh, embassy or a consulate, and New York City was a good place to, to do that. So spent some time with the American Alpine Club sort of getting uh, maps and uh, information from those folks, because in those days, the American Alpine Club was uh, just north of Grand Central, of uh, Central Park on 96th uh, Street, and uh, off we went. So we flew from New York to is the highest peak in uh, Ethiopia. It's called Rastashan. It's up in the highlands in central Ethiopia. It's about 15,000 some odd feet high. Okay. And so we uh, climbed that, spent a few more weeks traveling around Ethiopia, which was uh, not a real major tourist destination in um, 1971, which is when we were doing this. And then it uh, started by, by 1970, this was December of 71, and 72 in January, we uh, went down to uh, Uganda back before all of the nasty troubles were happening there. I think Idi Amin was in charge, but he hadn't really shown his true colors. Spent about a month in the Ruwenzori Mountains, the legendary mountains of the moon that were, uh, were mentioned by Ptolemy in his early writings and had unusually good weather. We were able to climb almost every peak of, of, of note in the Ruanzori, the highest, highest ones being 17,000 feet high. I mean, we were, it was snow on the equator. We were probably 50 miles from the equator, and here we were up in the snow and the cold and did some, some really pretty good climbs in there. Some, a few of them were, were really quite difficult. You said from that, there, yeah, you said uh, Uganda's not, wasn't a big tourist destination. But was it... Yeah, Ethiopia wasn't, or and Ethiopia Uganda really me. wasn't either. So was yeah. it to climbers, though? Like, were these peaks climbed, and I don't want to say often, because I doubt that, but were they well Periodically. We, we weren't doing any first ascents or anything. I mean, there was, a, okay. there was actually an alpine club of Uganda <laughs> really? that we connected with, and they gave us uh, a lot of information, arranged some porters for us, and told us what our requirements were. One of the things I remember 
that was just really hilarious is they had this list of food that we were supposed to supply the porter, the porters that were going to haul our gear up there. We needed to supply them with, I think it was a pound or maybe a kilo of uh, ground nuts every day. And we looked all over Kampala, Uganda, trying to find ground up nuts before it finally dawned on us one uh, day that ground nuts are nuts from the ground, also known as peanuts. Oh. And there were just mountains of peanuts everywhere. <laughs> no way. <laughs> and they're all just sitting so, on the ground. Just Well, yeah, there's just these huge, these huge bags full of peanuts all over the place. And they were, <laughs> in, in uh, Uganda English, they were called ground nuts. <laughs> was, uh, was this your first experience with international travel? Yes, it was. And so your first experience was basically heading around the world? That's right. <laughs> so how did you... And the, 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 the way we actually did, did that is uh, in those days, and to this day you can still do this, you can buy an around-the-world airplane ticket from an airline. That's right. And as long as you more or less go the same direction, you don't backtrack too much, you can uh, you just buy a round-the-world ticket. From, in our case, we, we flew from... Uh, uh, San Francisco to San Francisco, <laughs> and uh, the price in those days was eighteen hundred dollars for that ticket. It was, uh, I think, we, we figured out all the stops we wanted to make, so it was actually, I think, thirty-five different stops. We had a pile of paper plane tickets about an inch thick. Interestingly enough, just a few years ago, I was uh, uh, down in Baja, met a couple of young uh, British gals who were traveling around the world on an around-the-world airplane ticket, and they bought it from uh, the, the British uh, Airways. And a few years ago, that same round-the-world ticket that we bought for 1800 was now $1,500. <laughs> but 40 years later, it was just amazing. That's like <laughs> the only, yeah, that's the only thing that's done that. It's gone down in price. <laughs> that's right. Well, that television sets. Oh, uh, true. Yeah, good point. <laughs> um, how, how did you handle culture shock? Because I'm, sure, um, I'm sure right when you first land, where was your first visit? It was Ethiopia? Our, fir our first landing was from New York City to Gondar, Ethiopia. Okay, <laughs> a little bit different. You, you, you might as well have gone back to the, the Middle Ages, you know, it was sort of this really... Uh, Interesting old town, a lot, a lot of old, old castles and things, and uh, you know, pretty pr seriously primitive uh, third world conditions. The uh, we fairly quickly found ourselves a uh, interpreter who was interested in going out into the back country because there weren't very many options for doing that. Owl Hagos was his name, and so we ha hired him, and he. Uh, took us around town, sort of showed us where we could buy food and get accommodations and so on, and uh, sort of explained what, what was going on. He was a, uh, a, a tour guide, spoke, I think, like nine languages, just one of those exceptional people that uh, uh, has a real facility with language. And, you know, he, he was a friend. We sort of kept him in touch for years afterwards. I finally lost track of him, but uh, it was a, a really easy way to... Uh, Get by, which really helped us a lot when we were out in the backcountry because you would uh, there, there weren't a whole lot of signs and our maps weren't very good, so we really needed to talk to the local villagers to find out you know which trail out of the out of the village you had to do 
to go over to the the next major town or whatever. Yeah. So if mountaineering is is, I mean, I guess you said for the misfits and for the very tiny percentage of people in the United States, what's it like in these other countries? Well, it almost non-existent in those <laughs> days. I mean, the, these days, of course, uh, you know, there's climbing clubs all over the place. And, yeah. Uh, but it, it, it's really quite a big big deal even in, in a lot of uh, third world countries, just, just sort of like uh, Olympic athletics. But uh, in 1972, that, that kind of stuff wasn't really nearly as uh, popular or uh, actively participated in as, as it is in these days. Because i got to imagine the villagers that you're asking directions for are, like, you know, giving you double, double looks, like, what are they doing? Well, <laughs> well that's right. I mean, some, some, one thing that always surprised me, and we, we experienced it over and over again, is... People really stuck close to their village, and you'd, you'd, you, you had a map, so you, you, you knew the name of uh, another village or town, you know, 10 or 20 miles up the valley, and you'd ask them about it, and they had never been there. They'd lived their whole life in, their, in the, the town they were in, and they'd never walked uh, 10 or 15 or 20 miles up the, uh, the valley to the next one. You'd occasionally find traders that would... Uh, keep the uh, you know trails going and we're very uh, active uh, merchants bringing things from place to place and and they were if you could find a common language they they were a good source of information but uh, the the uh, most of the folks that you would run across the the, the, the villagers the, the people that ran little hotels or inns or restaurants or grocery stores or weren't really grocery stores or shops that happened to have groceries in them yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no they, Walmarts they, they, yet. They, yeah, they they just had absolutely no idea, you know, what was 15 miles up the valley. It was just, wow. it was really quite surprised me. Yeah, where did you guys go after Uganda? So after uh, Uganda, we then uh, backtracked to to Kenya, which of course is much more cosmopolitan okay. than Uganda. And you know, even then, I mean, uh, it turned out that Arlene Bloom's uh, roommate when she was at Reed College was a woman from Kenya. So we stayed with her and spent about a week and a half up in, on Mount Kenya, which is the highest peak in Kenya. And uh, a pretty respectable climb. I mean, the, the easiest possible route up Mount Kenya is probably 5.4 uh, five, or 5.5 five, five, and wow. sort of climbing or anything. You, you really need the equipment to get up it. And uh, the next, uh, after we did that, then we... Uh, went down to the border between Kenya and Tanzania and spent a week uh, walking up uh, Kilimanjaro, which, you know, to, to this day, it's still, it's like a six or so day uh, hike. It's, it, there's, there's a few technical climbs on it for the most part. It's just a long, long walk at uh, quite high altitude. Pole pole, right? Isn't that? Yeah, the top of the peak is 19,000 feet. I mean, it's a big mountain. <laughs> Was that the biggest one you you had done? Oh, I guess it was the biggest at, one in at, Africa. At, at, at that point, yeah, yeah. That, that was the highest peak that we had uh, had had reached the uh, the top of, and it was interesting. It was it was quite well organized. You just sort of show up and uh, hire yourself uh, porters if you really if you wanted to. You'd hire a guide. One of the more amusing things is 
turned out Arlene and I were the only people that didn't have a guide. We just hired a couple of porters to carry our uh, stuff. <laughs> when we got to the, uh, the it, it's, a, it's a volcano, an old, uh, long since dormant volcano, and you get to the first edge of the rim at a place called Gilman's Point, which is just a little under 19,000 feet, maybe uh, 18.6 or something like that. And the, uh, the the main summit, Uhuru Point, is probably a kilometer around the rim, you know, really quite a ways away. And we weren't about to stop at the uh, low spot, so we were ready to go. And most people were just dying of the altitude, but there was one fellow who uh, still had some energy left, and he uh, asked his guide about going on with us. And his guide looked at him very seriously and said, oh, no, to go on is to die. <laughs> Did you guys overhear that? We, yeah, we overheard that. We <laughs> cracked up. And so we, we went on, and we didn't die. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, how do you – I mean, did you, did you ever have to, like, face the fear of this might be a possibility? Um, we didn't ever climb anything that was really difficult with a, one exception. There was a, there was a climb in uh, the Ruin Zori in, uh, in Uganda where uh, Toby Wheeler and I, who was, uh, he was one of the, uh, the, the, the fellows, and uh, he, he and I were far away, the, the best uh, rock climbers. And we got in pretty much over our head. There was one, the crux pitch on that thing was extremely difficult, and we were probably about 15,000 feet high, and uh, the, the, the crux area was longer than a rope length, so we had sort of really a marginal belay. If, if either one of us had slipped, it would have been the end. It was one of these, okay, come on up, Toby, and don't fall because I don't think I can hold you. <laughs> Everybody had nothing to uh, hang on to, but, but we didn't have any trouble, so we, we uh, did okay. That, that was the only really seriously difficult climb that we did the, in, in the whole year. Most, mostly it was uh, moderate uh, a sense, you know, some steep snow fields or a little bit of rock, and nothing of any uh, great difficulty. Yeah, and really, really tall. So ones, after, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So after after we left uh, uh, Kenya and Tanzania, Arlene is Jewish, and so she needed to uh, spend a week in uh, Israel. So we stopped off in Israel. Luckily, between the wars, which were which were many back in those days, and uh, just had a wonderful week, you know, sort of uh, wandering around old Jerusalem, sort of uh, seeing uh, the sights and so on. And then from then, from there, we flew on to uh, Tehran, the capital of, of, of Iran, which was peaceful in those days. That was still when the Shah was in charge. And it was one of those amazing uh, uh, travel coincidences. We. Uh, Arlene and I were traveling together. Toby had decided to do something else for a while, and he was going to meet us there. And then a, a, the fourth fellow, Dave Graber, was coming from the U.S. because he had to finish up a quarter at school. So we had this sort of vague plan to uh, meet in Tehran. We are going to go to the American Express office in Tehran and leave notes of where we were staying. And then so you just check every day to see if you could uh, connect with each other. And that was about as uh, well as, as good as you could do back in the days before cell phones. Yeah. Well, 
Arlene and I flew on an airplane. You couldn't fly directly from Israel to Iran because it was a Jewish country to a Muslim country. So you had to stop in Crete, change planes, so we took off from Crete. Well, we were sitting in the airplane ready to take off, and who should walk down the aisle but Toby Wheeler. <laughs> and uh, we uh, sort of greeted him with great surprise. And about two minutes later, Dave Graber came walking down the aisle. We had all ended up on exactly the same airplane. Wow. So our, our reunion was, was quite simple at that point. Oh, man. I got to imagine, like, high fives and beer. Oh, beer. Yeah, we, 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 were just, we were just absolutely flabbergasted. So from there, we flew on to Tehran, spent about okay. a month climbing. Uh, there's a big high volcano, Mount Damavand, right outside of uh, Tehran that is... Uh, like 18,000 feet high or something like that. It's, it's, it's really quite a, uh, as the volcanoes go, it's really a nice volcano to uh, to hike up. From there, we took a bus up to the shore of the Black Sea. There's an area called the Alam Coup where there's some really good climbing to be done, but we were too early. We were there in April, and the, the weather was not good enough to really do a whole heck of a lot, so we uh, sort of did a bunch of stormy camping and uh, some peak bagging and nothing of any great consequence. Yeah, that's what I'm, are you are you camping most of this time, or are you in? Yeah, there were, we we're, we're staying in, in uh, really flea bag motel, hotels okay. in the cities, and then we're camping out. So we we probably camped oh more than half the time. Okay, and then flea bag hoteled uh, the other half. From from there, we uh, again we had this around the world play ticket, so we flew to uh, Kashmir, up in uh, the sort of north. Uh, Western part of uh, you know where India and Pakistan come together. By Kashmir is still in the news. It's still a a uh, place with both Kashmiris and the Indians think that think it's theirs. We just happened to be there between wars, <laughs> so we um, rented a houseboat on uh, wow. the Dal Lake, which is sort of the main lake in Srinagar, the main capital thing, and did a number of really lovely climbs uh, there. Several of which. We're most likely first ascents. It's really hard to, uh, to to know for sure whether anybody had actually been there before or not. I mean, we sort of combed the, the climbing literature. We couldn't find any real uh, record of anybody else having done some of these things. We'd hooked up with the uh, Mountaineering Club of uh, Kashmir and Jammu State and uh, did a couple climbs with uh, local Kashmiris who said, you know, no, nobody's ever been up here. We're really happy to have you to come along with us so you can you show us some of the climbing techniques that we really are not familiar with and so yeah we did some pretty pretty steep uh, snow and ice routes all, all, the mountains were all like 16 to 17,000 feet high we then uh, had had some extra time and the uh, Kashmiris told us about a uh, place that Supposedly had just opened up, although it turned out that was not true. The uh, it was still closed, but we went hiking up this place called the Wardwood Valley, and we'd been up uh, we'd been out for about a week and a half, and this uh, Indian Army patrol came by the other direction, and they were really amazed to find four Americans there, and were very suspicious of us. But it turned out that uh, the colonel that was leading the thing had climbed Everest the year before. We recognized his name, and so we said, well, you were the so-and-so that climbed uh, Mount Everest last year, and he beamed with pride, so well, yes, as a matter of fact, I am. At which point, they invited us over for dinner, and we had a wonderful time, and uh, 
we didn't get arrested and thrown in, in jail or anything like that. So that worked out pretty well. <laughs> That's amazing. That's such a. It is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, would you, do you really like? Do you think there was a very good chance you would have been thrown in jail had you not known that? Oh, well, we were in a closed area, so I mean, who who knows? Oh yeah. Uh, but we we were in the Indian controlled part of uh, Kashmir, and it was an Indian patrol. So it wasn't like we ran across a bunch of Pakistanis who were going to uh, accuse us of spying or anything like that. So uh, we were we were probably going to be just fine anyway. But we we were more than fine yeah. as a result of uh, having met the colonel. And I've <laughs> spaced his name now, but I've, I've got it written down someplace. We've got a picture of him. <laughs> Did you all know him, or was it just like one of you guys? Well, one or two of us had read the article okay. in the climbing literature, and uh, so we recognized the name and said, "Oh, well, you know, I think we, I think we've heard of you." <laughs> it was all You're famous, really, man. really quite remarkable. <laughs> That's amazing. For, uh, so, where did you guys head after that? So, from from there, we then um, backtracked with our uh, a, a slight backtrack that you can only go a certain direction certain distance on your round-the-world plane ticket before the uh, authorities would get unhappy. We went back to uh, Kabul, Afghanistan, and it turns out that uh, a uh, friend of a friend was the uh, one of the uh, liaisons to the uh, American embassy in, uh, in, in Kabul. So we uh, hooked up with him. He was... Uh, very interested in what we were doing. We actually had gotten special permission from the State Department to go into what was uh, considered a very sensitive area. If you look at a map of Afghanistan, there's a little thin finger in the top uh, right-hand corner of the the, the uh, Wakhan corridor that uh, separates uh, Afghanistan and China and Russia and Pakistan. And it's actually the, uh, I think it was the Oxus River, which is where Marco Polo had gone, you know, 700 years before. So we got permission to go up in there, and uh, this this fellow that we stayed with was, uh, he, he couldn't take the time, but his son was with him, and uh, we offered to take his son with us. His son was just thrilled with the idea. So that really lubricated the, uh, uh, our uh, interaction with the authorities that we were actually taking his son along on this, this this great adventure so things re- really worked out quite well we we hired a uh, uh driver and a truck it was a russian wazi which is sort of this bus uh, body on top of a russian frame that uh, was a pretty dubious uh, contraption but there were uh, i think 11 of us by then because we had had friends come in from the states that sort of met up with us and so uh we had uh, ended up expanding from four to eleven, including uh, a translator, which of course you just got to have, yeah. as, as well as this uh, the, the son of this uh, embassy worker. And so we went up into the mountains, or the mountains of the Hindu Kush, climbed the second highest peak in the Hindu Kush, a mountain called Noshak, which is twenty four thousand five hundred feet high, which is uh, my. My first and last taste of high altitude mountaineering. It is a, a truly unpleasant activity. Can you There's, can you uh, try to describe the experience? 
Well, it's, you're so enervated. You know, there, we didn't have oxygen, of course. Yeah. So your, your, your metabolic fires just don't burn very well. So you're always cold. And you're like, you get up in the morning and uh, you, you pull one shoelace on your boot and then, <sighs> <laughs> and then pull another shoelace. So it would take forever to, to do almost everything. Well, and this is coming from you and Arlene who had been, you know, months, I'm assuming, at this point, climbing yeah, we, these mountains. Yeah, we, 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 we thought we were pretty fit, although we'd been somewhat enervated by uh, uh, any number of cases of uh, GI problems that uh, you, you, you know, it's, it's, it's still a problem in that part of the world. You can very easily get poisoned. It was really a problem back then, you know, trying yeah. to get clean food and clean water and stay healthy. What was the sickest any of you guys got? Um, Bob, both Arlene and I got amoebic dysentery at one point. Okay. Oh. I, I don't recommend it if you can avoid it. Uh, uh, that sounds terrible. You, you, just go, you just go to the local chemist shop and they give you some concoction and, you know, probably sh- it probably shortened our life. I mean, who knows what, what it was that they gave us, but it, it killed the amoebas. Well, there you go. Our, our, only, our only brush with fame there was uh, there was a, an Italian... Uh, uh, outdoors uh, climbing group that was just down the valley from us about oh, probably four or five hundred yards and uh, they were going to be sure that they uh, made the climb so they had hired uh, Reinhold Messner who went on to become a rather seriously famous mountain guy so we, we, we met Reinhold back in his early days before he was uh, uh, sort of Considered one of the, the greatest mountaineers of the, uh, of the of the world, and even then he was uh, about as full of himself as anybody could be. <laughs> he, he spoke enough English to make it to make it clear that uh, we shouldn't be there, and he was the best there was. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Uh, we also hooked up with a group of uh, Polish climbers back in those days. Poland was a communist country, and uh, Anybody who was uh, wanted to sort of get away from uh, all of the restrictions and stuff, being uh, part of a mountaineering group was a good way to do that because it was a way to uh, sort of get fame and fortune for the, uh, the, 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 the Polish people and the Polish government. And so uh, we hooked up, uh, not really hooked up, but we, you know, spent a lot of time talking with these uh, Poles who were very, very entertaining guys. Some years later, I noticed that the, uh, the, the leader of the group turned out to be the right-hand man of Lech Valenza, the guy that sort of led the, uh, the Polish uh, you know, freedom movement out of uh, Gdansk that resulted in uh, you know, getting uh, Poland to be uh, uh, yeah, just another troublesome European country rather than a communist place. So, did you write, I mean, you're journaling this whole time, I'm assuming, and writing all these names down? And... Yeah, Arlene journaled more than I did. I've, I've got okay. a, a journal, which uh, I was really disappointed some years later when I was uh, reading it, because what I uh, had wrote, written down was uh, where we went and how long it took and what we ate and how much it cost and stuff like that, <laughs> rather than, you know, my, my thoughts and uh, sort of impressions of everything that we were doing. Now, Arlene, on the other hand, uh, decided that uh, she really wanted to write her her memoirs, 
and so uh, she did. I think you might have even read the book, or at least had I've, access. Uh, I have to access that. to the book, and the funny thing, I remember being in a bookstore in Frisco, Colorado, and like uh-huh. right when you walked in on one of the little shelves, it's just looking at you, and I'm like, I think my Uncle Joel's in this book. <laughs> yes. So what's it called? So anyway, our, it's called uh, uh, Breaking Trail, A Climbing Life. And so anyway, Arlene uh, wrote up uh, this book over, in a, over, over a period of several years, and uh, she uh, joined a, a writing club to help her uh, write this thing up. And in the uh, process, the uh, rest of the people said, well, you need dialogue in here. I mean, this is just a, a boring s- a story. And so she and I were uh, talk on the phone all the time, and also I'd come down to the Bay Area periodically, or she'd come here into uh, see Utah. We'd go for a hike in the hills, and she'd say, remember when we were walking up that ridge on uh, getting to the summit of Ross to show, what were we talking about? And I said, Arlene, it was 40 years ago. I have no <laughs> idea. Make something up. I won't contradict you, which is exactly what she did. So she's got all this really fun dialogue in, in, in the book, which I suspect that virtually none of it is actual uh, dialogue that was, that was truly spoken. But it's, it's the kind of thing that we, we we likely would have talked about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You talked about one point, but maybe not in exactly. that exact moment. Maybe um, not exactly. And I suspect that's the way a whole lot of memoirs are. Is you know, yeah. You, you'd, you'd need to be a pretty impressive journal writer in order to have a, a journal that would really make sense. That's true. Like that. Or like a photographic memory or something. <laughs> well, exactly. Um, so, so anyway, after, after, we, after we left Afghanistan, we then uh, flew over to uh, India, spent a few weeks in northern India from Amritsar to Delhi over to Varanasi. It used to be Banaras, but now it's Varanasi on the Ganges River. Went down and spent uh, just a magical day or two at the Taj Mahal, which is just but the Taj is such a spectacular place. It's worth a trip to India just to see it. Why, what's what's what drew you to it, or when you saw well, it? It's well, just so beautiful. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's one of the most beautiful buildings in the in, in, in the world. And uh, isn't it you know, symmetrical it, on each side? It is perfectly symmetrical. It's uh, it's the only thing that's not symmetrical at all is that. Uh, Underneath the central dome, straight down, is where uh, Shah Jahan uh, buried his uh, his wife. Which is who and he built he it for, died, right? Exactly. And when he died, they put his coffin to the side of hers. And that's the only non-symmetrical thing in the building. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Just yeah. Really, just really amazing. It, you... you if you pay attention when when you really look at it, there's four minarets around the outside, and they're all leaning outwards. So if there's ever an earthquake, they'll fall away from the central building <laughs> rather than hit it. Wow, that's so, that, that kind of attention to detail. The, the main entrance must be oh 30 or 40 feet high, and inlaid dark stone all the way around it are favorite phrases of the Quran. Well, as it goes up higher and higher, the letters get bigger and a little bit thicker, so it looks like every letter is exactly the same size. That's the visual impression that you get. It's truly remarkable. That is remarkable. Wow. So how are you 
how are you traveling to all these different places? Are you taking trains? Are you in cars? Well, again, we had we had this round the world airplane ticket yeah. that we go from capital city to capital city, and then once we got there, then it was whatever happened to be available. Sometimes it was a bus, sometimes it was a train. In Africa, they had these things called public taxis, where you would just uh, wave your hand on the side of the road, and the taxi would stop, and you would hop in with your gear. In, uh, in Kenya, they were all Peugeot 504s, these sort of old station wagons from the early 70s. And I remember our criteria for how crowded a uh, public taxi was is if there was somebody between the driver and the door so that he could sort of stay more or less centered, but he had the steering wheel, then it was too full. He didn't want to get in. <laughs> that was his requirement? That was, that, 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 that was our criteria for, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll wait for the next one. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So, uh, we, 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 for money, we had a, a big wad of uh, traveler's checks. That we, was going to be my uh, next question. <laughs> yeah, that, that was about the only way you could do credit cards in those days. And so we had traveler's checks, and what we had uh, heard is the thing you do is uh, – connect with the local Peace Corps folks, because the Peace Corps was uh, was alive and well then. And they would connect you with uh, good places to stay, good places to eat, and also uh, black market money changers. Because most, uh, most of those countries, people, wealthy people wanted to get their money out of the country, so you could go to uh, the back of some store or whatever and get... Uh, you know, two or three or four times the official rate. It, it wasn't as good with uh, traveler checks as it would have been with cash, but, you know, we weren't going to carry a couple thousand dollars no, worth yeah. of money around, around with us, so we uh, did it all with uh, with traveler checks. And, you know, we guarded the, this wad of plane tickets and traveler checks with our life because that was going to be really a, a problem otherwise. For total money, I had... Uh, $2,400 per year, so it was $200 a month, plus the plane ticket. And that was sufficient for all of our food, all of our uh, accommodations, all of our porters, all of our uh, uh, transportation, and so on. When you made it so back? The, the, whole trip, the whole trip cost me about $4,000. Oh, really? Okay. I was going to say, when you made it back, were you under budget? or? <laughs> well, I, I was broke. I mean, I just, <laughs> I spent every cent that I had. Yeah. But you're. did you get back and you're broke and you're like looking at your empty pockets and you're just like, totally worth it. Totally worth it. No question about it. That was a good, good way to spend the year. Yeah. So it, it did leave me with an abiding sense of, uh, of good fortune, you know, the, to, to see how uh, poorly a good portion of the world's uh, uh, population was living back then, and probably in some of those countries, it's worse now. So, yeah, yeah. I, that's one thing I've, I've never lost from that trip. It's just sort of this abiding sense of good fortune. I mean, there's just such an abundance of knowledge you can gain from traveling, or just doing anything outside your comfort zone. But also just traveling to all these different cultures, and you, I'm sure you just picked up so much from that. Well, that's exactly right. And I became a real. Uh, fan of geography, which I've sort of maintained, so I sort of pay quite a bit of attention to uh, the geography of places and, you know, sort of 
in the subsequent 45 years have been still uh, very interested in doing a lot of traveling, as you well know. Yeah, you guys travel. You do a big trip pretty much every year, if not multiple times, right? Pretty much, yeah. We, we try to do a, a, big, a big trip and a handful of smaller trips. We do a lot of stuff locally. Living in Utah, it, you're sort of right in the, in the middle of the Rocky Mountains, and there is so much stuff to be done here. I mean, it's just really remarkable. I'm just learning that after moving to Colorado. I'm looking at uh, uh, just the the open space parks in our county alone and there's Uh 29 (laughs) and me and the girls me and my uh harper and zoe the the two babies we've gone to probably 10 of them (laughs) yes just just in our county so it's crazy in your county yeah there's just there's there's so many places to to go and so many wonderful things to see colorado's a magnificent state as is Utah, as is uh, Wyoming, Idaho, New Mexico, Arizona. Yeah. They're, they're interesting because, uh, especially the more deserty states, it's like uh, huge amounts of just barren nothingness with these just jewels of uh, mountains or canyons or whatever, you know, sort of scattered around from, from place to place. Yeah, so you never really left Utah. You've always lived there? Pretty much. I mean, I've traveled a lot, but uh, for for a place that's actually a home, I've uh, lived in Utah just about my whole life. I moved here when I was one, okay. so I lived in. I grew up in Salt Lake City, and then I moved to Park City, the big ski town. Yeah. For thirty years, and then just a month ago, uh, Marilyn and I moved back down to the edge of Salt Lake. So we're we're up on the side of a hill, you know, sort of with a really lovely view across the. The valley was sort of right on the edge of the mountains, but we're not quite in them like we've been. Life is easier now than it was living at 7,000 feet all of <laughs> storms and the snow and the hills and everything. And like a moose coming into your on your porch and stuff? That's right. We, we, we don't have moose anymore. We, we have to content ourselves with deer. <laughs> so if you, mm-hmm. if, you, if you had to pick another place, I mean, you've traveled... All over. I mean, you're probably, obviously, the most well-traveled person I know. Um, so if you had to pick a different place to settle down in, where would you pick? Well, I would. I, I really like the western United States. It's okay. somewhere relatively close to the Continental Divide. You know, Montana, Idaho, uh, Colorado, uh, maybe even the northern part of Arizona or New Mexico. Northern New Mexico is just a lovely part of the West. Okay. But I, I, I do love the Western U.S. I think I would uh, be hard-pressed to, uh, to, to to leave this area. Yeah. Have you have you done any ice climbing? Did I did ever... quite a bit of ice climbing back in the uh, late 60s and early 70s, back when uh, things were really pretty... Uh, Pretty primitive. In fact, it was uh, it was interesting. The uh, ice axes back in those days. You've probably seen pictures of the old climbing things. They're these really tall uh, things with a a, a pick that go this goes out horizontally. You know, about eight or ten inches. And uh, some friends and I were doing some ice climbing. Was, you know, it sure would be nice if this thing would curve down so we could actually snag <laughs> it into the snow. Well, one of the guys was um, uh, a metallurgical engineering major, and so we took our ice axes and uh, heated them 
to the point where the metal was soft enough that we could actually bend it. And then we had a, uh, an oil quench so we would uh, cool it at the right rate so that it um, was still hard but didn't become brittle. And to this day, I've still actually got that. You can, we had a, a little hardness tester, a little thing you can pat out. You can see the little dings in the metal to, to see how it was. Interestingly enough, somebody uh, who just finished writing a climbing guide for the latest iteration of the climbing guide for uh, the, the Wasatch uh, Granite Cliffs got wind of this, and he came over to the house, and he was just fascinated. So there was a picture of our ice axe in his climbing guide. <laughs> He was—he was just sort of intrigued that, you know, back in the in the '60s, if you wanted equipment like that, you made it yourself. It was two or three years later that uh, all of a sudden we opened a catalog one day, and Chouinard was making drooped ice axes. Yeah. Which of course, you know, these, these days, uh, there, there's nothing horizontal. You have all these just sort of amazing ice tools, but you didn't have those 50 years ago. That just didn't exist. Yeah, any uh, any broken bones from this uh, hobby? <laughs> the only broken bone I ever got is uh, Fred and I were uh, uh, just bouldering around in a picnic ground, and we were uh, playing the, the climbing game where you eliminate a handhold and then do the, the, the like you know fifteen foot root or something like that. Okay. And then you eliminate another hold and then another hold until you got to the point where. Only one of you could make the climb, and I was doing some strange uh, uh, thing with my hands, you know, sort of pushing in some awkward place. So I slipped and fell off and broke the bone of my finger. But that, that's the only real broken bone that I've suffered. That's, that's... I, of course, had several uh, friends and acquaintances that have been killed in the mountains, but uh, I've uh, been fortunate, none of them were me. Do you feel like you were extra cautious or um i was always pretty cautious i i, I really didn't want I, I i did it for fun i wasn't doing i would gotcha. I was, that's why i was never i was never one of the uh real leading edge guys i mean there there there's the a team and the b team and the c team i was probably the c team or yeah. c but I, I was never part of the uh the vanguard the people that were really pushing the limits and uh you know, some of those people survived, and some of them didn't. Yeah, I mean, it's it's in a dangerous sport. I mean, well, it certainly can be. I mean, you you yeah. you you climb within your ability, and you're lucky because you you know stuff can fall off the mountain and hit you. Yeah, and so you have to be sort of cautious about where you go and when you go there. Then you can minimize the chances of having something come down and, and uh, land on your head. Wow. Um, what about I had a couple of close calls with rocks coming by? But yeah, you know, ne- never to the point where you know something actually hit me. But close enough to get the heart pumping. Yeah, exactly. Whoa, good lord! That's what um, I went and joined my friend Calvin uh, while he was doing the maroon bells in Colorado, uh-huh. and I've I've talked about it a little bit, but. The maroon bells were some of I, I had a list of ones I didn't want to do because I didn't feel comfortable uh-huh. with, and of course the maroon bells are up there. And of course he texts me that week like, "Dude, I really need someone to come out and do this with me." <laughs> yeah. And those I don't have you ever climbed those before? I have actually climbed them in 1965. All right, so you know about the rocks? I mean, they're loose, right? Well, they certainly are. We we actually went up there in the spring. I think it was like late April or, or early May. 
and it was a snow climb. We went up the gully between the two peaks. Wow. Really? The ones uh, between it? Uh-huh. <laughs> like the traverse? Well, there, there's, a, there's a, a very steep uh, uh, gully, couloir, whatever you want to call it. It's sort of between the two peaks. You sort of see it you know, in all the calendar pictures. And we went right up the middle of that thing, which was... Uh, it was all snow, yeah. so we 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 just kicked steps up and then we faded back down, and we went on a uh, early in the morning on a cold day, so there wasn't any rockfall to speak of coming down there because normally that would be a death shoot. You you in the summertime you wouldn't even dream of going in there. That would be a it's a gully for a reason. That's where all the rocks come tumbling yeah. down. Yeah. Well, and I I just remember he it was just me and Calvin on the mountain except I think we saw one other guy, but I could see how that'd be so dangerous because he barely just pushed his foot down on a giant and not like a rock but like a giant rock and it slid uh-huh. all the way down and I just remember having to duck and letting it slide by me. Um, sure, it was kind of terrifying, <laughs> and that was you know oh, yeah. to the you know least extent probably that that you could have almost um that's right yeah. what what other colorado ones have you done um spent a week in the san juan's climbing the uncompadre and the the, the wetterhorn and the matterhorn and sort of those those sort of high rocky peaks in the san juan yeah it was very very pretty and of course i've driven to the top of mount evans which is uh, yeah not exactly a rock climb uh more terrifying <laughs> though in my opinion the driving up well, on that it sure road is. is so t- yeah, it certainly was pretty pushes what your car can do <laughs> most of the climbing i've done in the west has been in uh, the tetons and the wind rivers okay and, uh, you know farther north up into uh, canada the, the, the canadian rockies especially the interior ranges the selkirks and the uh the adamants and that area is just it, it's much nicer rock than you see up in the Bab Jasper Highway area. I've done a couple of things in there, but those are pretty scary uh, mountains because they're they're rubble piles. They're much like the Maroon Bells. Yeah, Assiniboine in particular. Is, I mean, some friends and I climbed again in the spring when it was still pretty snowy, but I would imagine it would be really a, a dangerous place to be just because of the amount of loose rock that could come tumbling down on your head. Yeah. What is that? So what would be the biggest threat to a rock climber? Um, for the kind of rock climbing that I did, rock fall. Okay. You know, I mean, come down and hit you. Yeah. So uh, if, if you're, uh, if you're somebody who is absolutely, uh, nuts and out doing free soloing and of course falling off yeah that's those people are crazy alex honnold is fascinating to me oh he's fascinating to me too <laughs> he's, just, he's just sort of the most amazing young man it's just really really incredible what what he's able to do and the fact that he's survived for so long doing it yeah i've i showed a video I have the mental wherewithal to uh expose himself to those kinds of of risks and be able to continue rather than just sort of being frozen with fear is amazing oh yeah oh yeah i don't they're i'm trying to you always you see that and you try to put yourself in that situation and you know i you you're just like i would freeze there's no way i wouldn't just freeze up <laughs> and like That's puke right. or something <laughs> i uh, he, he, he is different than the rest of us he has to be yeah for sure i showed a video of uh of him to my eighth grade students 
who you know we're in Virginia, so um, they don't know much about rock climbing. Uh, it's not a mm-hmm. very popular thing there, and you've never seen a room of fourteen-year-olds freak out more than watching that video. <laughs> it was it was kind of funny because they're yelling stuff at the screen like they're completely engaged, and they're like, no, no, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, it's he's a tr- truly remarkable human being. Yeah, at least he doesn't do base jumping, which is uh, that's true. You know, those, those wing suits or something like that. Now that's really a good way to get killed. Oh my, that's so insane! I <sighs> <laughs> I think I just tried to freak my eighth graders out because I'd show them that stuff too. Um, <laughs> I'll bet. So, what is it about rock climbing that really, really got you hooked? Well, I, I really enjoyed the adventure of it. I enjoyed the, the scenic beauty, and I really enjoyed the camaraderie of uh, going out into, uh, you know, the, the, the backcountry with people that I uh, really enjoyed being with. And you, you, you form a real tight bond because, you know, there, you, you are subjecting yourself to a substantial amount of risk. And so you're, you're not really putting your life in the hand of somebody that you're with. Them. But you have to have enough confidence that if something goes wrong, you're with a solid person who uh, will be able to uh, do whatever needs to be done to extricate you from some mess or other. Yeah. So it's, it, 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 and you, you, you get a real sense of uh, the inner competence of, of people. Some folks you climb with once or twice and think, I'm not going to go with them again. They're, they're they're scaring me, versus somebody who's just really a really a solid human being that you can you know you can count on. I guess it's probably similar to what happens with army buddies. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Did you did you ever have any uh, um, wildlife encounters? Um, a handful. Probably the scariest is I was just climbing here in. Uh, Little cottonwood cane and the, and the local granite, and reached up onto a ledge and pulled myself up to the ledge, and there was a rattlesnake sitting on the ledge, looking at me, probably six inches from my nose, <laughs> and that just freaked me out. I mean, I took about a ten or fifteen foot leader fall, which is yeah, I yeah. sort of instantaneously pushed myself away. Just you know, sort of fell down to. Uh, to, to the end of the rope. <laughs> I did the exact same I, like, thing. Like I didn't get hurt. Except I wasn't on a cliff, but I uh, I was starting off a trail run, and there was some grass overgrown um, over the trail, and I took a step down and realized I stepped about two inches from a giant copperhead snake. And oh, my. I, f- I did the same thing. I just fell. Like, I lost... <laughs> I'm like, this is a terrible defense mechanism because I just lost all uh, ability to move my body. <laughs> and I just yeah. collapsed on the ground and I made some weird, like, guttural noise like that. Like, oh, God. And uh, <laughs> the hardest part was trying to decide after that if I still wanted to do my run for the day. And I. Well, sure. Exactly. I did. I mean, that, that... You know, because I'm stubborn, but uh, every stick the rest of the way looked like a snake. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So yeah, I've had plenty of uh, you know confrontations with uh, moose on the trails, and never really a close call with a bear. I mean, I've seen a lot of bears over the years, yeah. but I've never really had a uh, oh my god, I'm about to be eaten kind of experience with them. <laughs> moose are actually more scary for the most part. A lot more people get hurt by moose than bears because they charge you, right? They're, 
Yeah, well, they, they're unpredictable. They, they might. I mean, I've never been charged by one, but I sure know people who have. Yeah. And uh, so you, you, you just you pay attention, and if you see somebody standing in the trail looking real big, you think, so, well, maybe I ought to back off and go some different way here. Yeah, yeah. What What's the strategy supposed to be, like zigzag or jump behind a tree well, or you what? Well, just give, 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 give them plenty of space. Yeah. And, uh, and if, if there's trees, which there usually are, then uh, you want to have a tree or two between you and them so that uh, they would have to either go over, go through the tree or go around it, and, and you could just sort of uh, play some kind of dodge them, I guess. But, <laughs> yeah, for the most part, uh, keeping a healthy distance is the thing to do. Yeah. So how how many years after you got back from this round-the-world trip did you keep rock climbing? I mean, I know you eventually started adding in other things like skiing and rafting and, you know, all those other oh, yeah. outdoor all, activities. All those kind of outdoor things. I, I, the, the last big rock climb I did was the Grand Teton in 1997. Okay. Which was, uh, you know, 30-some-odd, about 30 years after, after that. By then, my... Uh, joints were starting to really complain. I had a knee replacement a few years later and things like that. So it just became clear that I really shouldn't uh, get into uh, cliff situations where if something, if I dislocated something, it'd be really hard to get off. So I pretty well started uh, sticking more to uh, backcountry hiking, cross-country skiing, stuff like that, which is what I do to this day. Yeah. Yeah. And you guys have great cross-country skiing around there. Well, we certainly do. You have to come over here sometime and try it. I'm going to. <laughs> That's the plan. <laughs> you're, 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 you're always invited. We How far are we now? Bed. 500 miles, probably. So what's that, like eight hours, nine hours? Yeah, eight or nine hours. All right. All right. That, could be, that could be easily, easily done. We'll, we'll see when the, when the four-month-old gets you know, a few more months under her belt. Sure, yeah. You've, you've, you've got a few traveling challenges right now. But... A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for talking with me. Um, I, I, I have a whole list of questions that I didn't even get to, but I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, well, I'll be happy to bore you to death another time. I would love that. Yeah. Oh, for sure. We'll we'll do this again. But one one last question that I actually am really—it's a dumb question, but I'm really curious about it. Is uh, yes. Okay. So you 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 think you possibly set first ascents? On a couple of the mountains, yeah, probably. Probably. Do you do you get a name, the route? Well, that that is the whole idea that you uh, you uh, make the first climb and you you get to uh, to name it. I've got a three or four rock climbs here locally. My my favorite of the of the lot is something we call the root of all evil. <laughs> and the reason we did that was because about halfway up there was just this gigantic bush. It was blocking the uh, the crack, and I happened to have a pocket knife with me, so I probably stayed there for a half an hour, slowly uh, slicing the thing off. You know, sort of got down into the roots, and so by the time we got rid of the damn thing, we called it the root of all evil because I was just covered with pollen and dust and dirt and everything. <laughs> it was just a terrible experience. <laughs> Did you call it root R O O T? Uh-huh. That was the root of all evil. I'm, respect <laughs> for the pun. <laughs> respect for the pun, exactly. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, cool. Well, thank you, Uncle Joel. I, I, we definitely need to do this again because it was really enjoyable. And I'm sure you have well, so many more stories. 
Well, there's, there's one or two probably. Okay. <laughs> All righty. Awesome. Thank hey, you. Hey, great talking with you, Chris. Yeah, thanks. You have a good night. Bye now. Bye. You too. Wow. I did not know any of that. Does that make me a bad nephew? I don't know. But I'm super honored that I was able to learn that about my Uncle Joel. Um, basically, uh, it's been about a week since I re- we recorded that conversation. And in that week, I've been really researching everything he's talked about. So let me just share a couple of resources. The book he mentioned by his friend, Arlene Bloom, who he traveled around the world with, is called Breaking Trail, A Climbing Life. And the story he mentions today is just a it's a small section of the book um, because the book is about basically all of her uh, adventures and quests and mountains she's climbed and all that fun stuff. In fact, I learned this. She was the first, she led the first American ascent up Annapurna, which is the 10th tallest mountain in the world, also known as one of the most deadly mountains in the world. I think it says something like, 36% of people who try to climb it end up uh, dying on the mountain. And she led a group, not only first Americans up the mountain, but it was a woman's only expedition. So she sounds like a really cool person. Um, obviously, she's had an effect on my Uncle Joel's life as we saw only a small portion of his adventures today. So that was Breaking Trail, A Climbing Life by Arlene Bloom. And her last name is spelled B-L-U-M. The other thing I really was interested in looking up was uh, the 24,000 foot mountain uh, Uncle Joel mentioned in this podcast. And that mountain is called Noshak and it's in Afghanistan. Uh, It's the second tallest mountain in Afghanistan And interestingly enough, I just learned that it was reopened a couple years ago after decades of being closed due to the political instability and war going on in that country. Uh, Really fascinating story. I'm going to I know I say this about every guest. I know you don't have to tell me, (laughs) but I want to get Uncle I want to get Uncle Joel back on the podcast, uh, hear more of his stories. I mean, he's got a billion of them. This was only, you know, a tiny, a tiny portion, but obviously a very life-changing story for him. So yeah, sometime in the future, we'll have him back on and, uh, and hopefully I'll be pursuing some more mountaineers, um, in the future because it's a topic that really fascinates me especially trying to get into the mindset of the people climbing these mountains, the planning that's involved, the death-defying obstacles they face um, on a day-to-day basis. High alpine mountaineering is just incredible. All right, well, if you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to check us out on iTunes, um, Like a Bigfoot, you can click the little subscribe button and those just pop up on your phone every week. Kind of the easiest way to do it. Otherwise, you can check back on our website, likeabigfoot.com. Um, I also recently started a Facebook group, also called Like a Bigfoot, <laughs> where uh, I'm posting articles, videos, um, you know, basically anything involved with 
the topic for that week. Uh, so, for instance, a couple of weeks ago, I had Peter Majark on of the American Football Project, um, a documentary about soccer around the world. And I had posted his videos throughout the week. So you could just check them out right on there. Kind of an easy way to interact with with the community that we're trying to build here. So yeah, check them out. Um, hope you're enjoying it. I'm enjoying it. I'm learning a lot. As always, I'm super grateful that you're listening, tuning in, and uh, yeah, check back next week. <laughs>